Welcome to the Hay Kings podcast, sponsored by Vermeer, your trusted source in hay and forage equipment. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Ken Wagenbach. Ken has a broad view on agriculture in a way that few others do. Ken's going to take us through his early career as a full-time farmer, some education and relationship building activities that took him on to a professional career at Agco. Ken worked testing, marketing, and engineering ag equipment, but especially on the hay side. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Welcome to the podcast, Ken. Glad to be here. Thank you. Where did you start in agriculture? I started as a young lad with my grandpa for the most part. My grandfather had raised registered pulled Herefords, him and a, and a good friend of theirs, and they, we took on a project inside of that as a 14-year-old of uh, cleaning up some ground that was going to be made into a, a park, park and recreationals. Okay. It was 600 acres with a six, seven-foot more and an old massy 185 tractor, which took all summer, so that was my start. It morphed into that, into renting ground, into taking off from there. We did have livestock of both cattle and hogs up to a point where I made this. We made the decision, my brother and I, that uh, if we're going to continue, what something had to give. There wasn't enough time for uh, everything, mm-hmm. so we gave gave up all the livestock at that point. Mm-hmm. But I will say that that uh, that period of time is where I probably learned to make hay from older people, albeit it was small square bales, but we made straight alfalfa and Timothy Timothy alfalfa mixed, sold the good stuff and fed the poor stuff to our registered herds. Sure. Hay and cows go together really well just for that reason. Right. But it was more of a retail out of the out, out the back of cars and pickups mm-hmm. than big lots. So that was kind of the start, and then things moved uh, and morphed into a fairly decent-sized operation in central Illinois. When I think about central Illinois, I'm thinking corn and soybeans. Is that right? That, that is correct. That being said, that drove uh, use use of technology before it was maybe popular or maybe even in totally invented or released from OEMs. So what you're telling me is you were really early on in the GPS world. Well, more GPS, but it was more on uh, fertility, mapping it out and grid sampling and, and aerial imagery. Oh, okay. That kind of drove it. The rest of it just kind of fed on itself and kind of, again, just there was no direct path. It just kind of happened. But okay. I think playing in that realm exposed you to different people. This is something that we didn't talk about before. What? Who are those folks that you connected with that fed into that technology adoption cycle? We went, there was a group of us that participated in produce top producer or top mm-hmm. far, farmer event. Mm-hmm. It was an annual event. And out of that became uh, relationships that kind of formed and, and that provided input. There was uh, some professors there that had some programs that were very intriguing. We took that and ran mm-hmm. um, out of that group. People that were probably uh, instrumental in starting Case IH's AFS system started from that. Cases what? Cases Advanced Farming Systems okay. AFS. Okay. Came out of that relationship. Those were in there. Those so these were the peers that I that I kind of tagged along with. Uh huh. 
Rockwell International was on the GPS side of the world. The other, so the, their participation in, in GPS and guidance within the Caterpillar tractor development, along with Beeline out of Australia. These fed that technology uh, carrot, if you want to say. Mm-hmm. We just kind of took it and implemented it where we where we could. There was also a gentleman that worked for the USDA that was a neighbor and provided some insight where we probably thought we needed to go, or how we could develop or make make things work. And so that 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 was the seed that got planted, and when then we kept watering and fertilizing, if you want to use that terms or analogy. Uh-huh. Right. Now, what you're talking about here is a peer group. What advice would you have for a young producer looking for a peer group, and then maybe one that already has that peer group but is looking to expand those interactions? I think the one uh, event that, that I participated in it was in uh, precipitated by successful farming back in 88, 89, somewhere in that time frame. And they pooled a bunch of professors of different uh, inclinations, so mainly on agribusiness, mm-hmm. which was geared toward the active producer that needed to uh, further their, their, ed- further their education. So it was a week-long session. Mm-hmm. It was in T- Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, we were given a heavy dose of a lot of information, a lot of top-notch people. So if you spend, uh, you may not know the name, but uh, David Cole was one of them about Virginia Polytech. I just happened to know Dr. Cole. He does quite a bit of work with Northwest Farm Credit. Yes. And so he, you spent a week with him. Oh, boy. That's like drinking from a fire hose. Yes. That being said, there was, I think, in that first class, there was roughly about 100 people broke up in different groups. That formed a very good nucleus of of knowing people. And I tell people to get involved in that because that became a close-knit group. And they're still still in the in the business today your your john roaches come out of that your uh, danny kleinfeller out of texas a&m mm. came out of that participated in that in, in his tpac program mm-hmm. and that was a start of it so i it's it's a little costly because it's an individual you're paying to go but i say that you're going to form relationships and uh be you, you can't replace it the, mm-hmm. that from not just your hometown, but across the country. That is what I would encourage people to get into, if not, if not for the education, but just for the camaraderie. Sure. Getting back at that notion of a peer group, a group to associate with and interact with, as opposed to just going stri- strictly for those educational components. In this case here, it was very intense. So you had 60, 60 hours of class time in, in a six-day, seven-day window. Mm-hmm. There was, you eat, eat slept, you ate, slept, and drank with them, so you become pretty close. Yeah. Um, I can say for myself, I, for the first time, I've become to realize that there was more to, to agriculture than turning dirt. That strikes me as a really impactful statement. Can you unpack that thought process just a little more? Well, as a, as a producer, you get caught up in what you're doing to be the best, or try to be the best, or try to do the best job you can with the with the inputs or the the resources that you have. But when we went for for me, when I attended that, it uh, opened up so much more and so much, so many more places and relationships that turning turning dirt, just playing in the dirt. Uh, I won't say it become mundane, but there was a bigger, there was more to life. 
I think if you go look back at the, piece, the people that are successful today, that they can come out of a, some program like that. There are a few of them. Uh, Harvard had a a week or two week long session similar to that, an ag business course. So those these were the kind of emphases that that were available. I cho- I went three years. That's how I enjoyed it mm-hmm. or got out of it. Off the top of your head, what are some of those events? that are going on now that a producer could tap into? You mentioned TPAP. TPAP is out of Texas A&M. Is still, I believe it's still going. I believe Harvard still has a session. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's on a regular basis, but I think that they still have it. But they're, from, from the industry that you're chasing down, you have you do have some uh, alfalfa universities and some, some furthering education in that department. Mm-hmm. But I will say the first this was the first time that I got exposed, again, to a heavy dose of marketing, a heavy dose of economics and why you would do certain things. And and there was one one uh, event there, and that particular one, we had a professor out of Arkansas, Jake Looney, that was given some law and then banking and how those two tied together and how there was a why things are why they were there are and it shaped changed shaped a lot of people in that particular segment of it again there's more more to agriculture than than turning dirt and in today even in my corporate world as i made a change into that these people are still in positions uh beyond just the at the time there's mainly producers but they've all tra- not say all but a good portion of transitioned to something else and they came through those programs you mentioned your transition from farming to a, a more professional world. Can you take us through that? That seems something that seems an impossibility for some, I'm sure. There was a few events in life that made made you make some hard choices, and there was one in, in ours. And twice uh, doors closed on some segments, opened up opportunities, opened up on another, and not really knowing when you. When you're in the producing side, you're so capable of doing multiple different segments of, that it's hard to know what, what you're going to do when you grow up. Fortunately, I went on to a non-ag-related job, and for the first time, I found that there are, there is a life without seasons, without uh, rain events, and I somewhat was uh, motivated by it. Hence, I moved out of that, but uh, I enjoyed that little segment in life that you, you, spring, fall, and summer didn't have no effect. <laughs> Funny story, though. I treated it as farming, so every project, everything that I was involved in, was eighty acres, and you did, you had a goal of three hundred and twenty acres or four hundred and eighty acres a day. And my, at the time, my uh, supervisor couldn't figure out what was driving Ken. I said, "Well, I'm farming," and he goes, "What?" And I said, "Well." Each one of these buildings that we do, that's that's 80 acres, and the sun starts, gets up at six, and goes down at nine. We we can do do six of them a day. <laughs> he never bothered me after the. I don't want to say bother. It wasn't a bother. It was just he soon understood what drove what drove us. But I will. I can say that when you make a transition from the production side to anything else, you still have to take your habits with you. Mm-hmm. You're still still driven pretty hard. Um, that's a, that's a makeup that's just hard to get out of a, a person. That that non-ag event turned into uh, an opportunity that uh, rolled into the uh, role that I had done the last 15 years with inside of Agco. Take me through that early career at Agco. What kind of projects did you work on? Technology related testing and field testing. What other people developed. 
putting helping to put the practicality and reality in versus, versus theory. Some of us, it took us from uh, Central Illinois dirt farmer to doing these practices around the globe. You've had some opportunity to travel and test in these uh, in these testing roles. Brazil was a, a place. Uh, Germany, Italy, mm-hmm. Denmark. So th- these were these were the areas that we we went and uh, participated in inside of, inside of that professional role inside of technology and validating in different environments around the globe. So take me through that. I generally find when I travel and I go and talk to farmers. It really doesn't matter what language everyone's speaking. You can get along pretty well talking agriculture. Is that your experience? And do you find more similarities than differences? More similarities. Agronomics 101 is still the main thing that everybody's trying to get to. They may have different soil types, different conditions, different cultures, different things to work around, but it's still planting seeds in topsoil and getting a little water and fertilizing it and cultivating and then then harvesting it for for gain that's what it's that's the same i will say that your prior life of being on the production side of agriculture probably helped this particular person out quite a bit Mm because that put me on a level playing field with most of them maybe we knew how to run the physical machines a little more than some uh, how to bring the best out of it just from experience, that certainly helped. That the technology then morphed into a marketing role a little later on. That led into the bailing side, if you want to take that, because we at the time we we're venturing out into uh, ethanol by cellulosic, and that was coming from purpose-grown crops or residue crops. And in the high states, there's a lot of corn residue. We become involved in those projects. I have the advantage of having heard a few of these stories already. Take me through some of these biomass baling stories that you have, and maybe biomass isn't even the right term here. They were massive. I won't say massive, but they were a lot of tonnage in a short window of time to, to, to produce. If they were going to create a plant, they're um, needed X amount of tons per day, per week, per month, per year mm-hmm. that you just couldn't find on the open market. So you had to make your product. So you're talking about cellulosic ethanol? Cellulosic ethanol. Okay. I'm curious to know what you think a large, you use the word massive. What do you think a big operation is in, in terms of tonnage? 100,000 tons to a million. Okay. That that also strikes me as quite large. <laughs> Um, I can say that the million didn't get, didn't happen. It never went to fruition. Mm-hmm. But there's some 250,000 ton was a material was made a couple falls. Logistics of that of, of working around growers trying to get their corn harvest out and then uh, trying to get their fall tillage in to try to take off some residue into an environment that doesn't really at the time really didn't have a in use hadn't been perfected. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a, a lot of different things, there a lot of moving parts. At the same time that you're working on providing volume for a cellulosic ethanol plant, there's some research going on on these balers? Well, it was a, we used it as, or say Agco used it as a pre to generate data to for the next generation for improvements because you had a pretty captive uh, window where you put a lot of hours on a lot of balers in a short period of time, 60 days, 90 days with about 28 working days. Oh, wow. You're saying you went through a quarter million tons. That was a goal. Um, not, not every one of them made it, but uh-huh. that, was a, that was a goal. 
that's a tremendous volume in a very short time period. And there are still some projects are still, I won't, I won't say the project they've moved on. That's just part of the, of making them. Some, some of the crews that were out of this are still, still operating in the, in the United States. Still, they may not be doing massive tonnage at one point, but over a course of a 12 month period, they're, they're gaining, probably doing the same tons. Let's take a break there and we'll get a word from our sponsor. From the hay field to the feed bunk, look to Vermeer. You've got livestock to feed. You know about our lineup of mowers, rakes, and balers. Now we're taking our legacy to the bunk. Introducing the Vermeer lineup of vertical mixers and feed wagons. 20 different makes and models to fit your operation. Durable, long-lasting components and accurate scales with Bluetooth capability. From the field to the feed bunk, look to Vermeer. You have some unique insights into baling corn. I, I want to tease out some of those things. Take me through the distinction between that alfalfa and Timothy that you said you started with fairly early on and how that performs in a big baler and then how that relates to the corn stover. Alfalfa and Timothy are different animals to corn, to corn stover. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to treat alfalfa different. You will not pack it in tight. You will get it firm. But you want it to breathe and to draw, to be able to not over, to heat up. Uh, moisture is the same factor in both scenarios, but it has more of a different consequence in the uh, alfalfa than it does in the corn stalks. Mm-hmm. Your volume in the alfalfa is not as, as uh, intense. It's you're you're going to take two a ton off or two ton an acre if you're irrigated at, at a time possibly, and you may do that several times, a four or five times a season of some some volume. Or corn stover, you're you're got a window of after harvest before then before it snows to pull it off. You got one shot at it. Uh, we used to think one shot. We uh, I believe we did some in snow to practice because we knew we were going to work in snow. We knew that we could handle some moisture at certain points if we could utilize it right away. But I think what what these bigger projects what makes them unique. Bailing is one thing, but you've got to think of the whole scope of the whole project. So you've got to handle that product several different times. So now density of the bales, conditions, and preservability of those bales becomes pretty important. And okay. then, you, the, then the, the deconstruction of them going into these plants. And so bale uniformity, bale size, bale flake size. Um, all played a big factor, and out of that, we learned that if we're killing, if we kill the membrane, then twine becomes less of an issue, and so then that's what generated the path for further development of equipment, heart machines. Killing the membrane. Help me understand the biology and physical processes behind that. For those of us that are real fans of baling, that's a really critical concept to understand. Straws, so re- residues. So you, in your area, you have a little bit of straw you bale i yeah. believe yeah yeah um, you've got grasses mm-hmm. in the west coast they're baled dry for the most part after they're harvested off the seeds have been harvested so you have dry materials that material is a hollow stem for the most part to make bales of certain weight certain size or certain consistency 
you don't have to kill that membrane you, and you don't have to maintain flake size to make a good bale. But if you want to move it four times and you want to stack it in a small area and you want your machinery that deconstructs it to be run uniformly, now all of a sudden uniformity plays a factor. Out of that chasing that uniformity and uh, narrowing the bandwidth of change, we learned then that we were actually increasing our density because we were putting enough plunger strokes, shortening up or crushing that, and now it didn't. we no longer fought the twine quite as bad as we would normally if we didn't do that. Mm-hmm. So these steps, um, each, each little step was not big, big changes, was little changes that added up to a whole lot of good things. I will preface it that it's still not an easy cake because it's dirt and material and machinery don't always go together very well. <laughs> right. We're trying to bail up crop residue and grasses and alfalfa, not dirt. Yes. Dirt's abrasive. Is that? Abrasive. That is correct. That That's just the way to think about that, like sandpaper going through a machine. Those are the things that we learned. And then the benefit of, a, I won't say very few of the, the ethanol plants, there's only one that would could come online once ethanol becomes a commodity of value and again there are, are processes that takes a large amount of balers to do it in a short period of time and then coordinate coordinating that from both oems and parts and service and support mm-hmm. most of these projects were done in central since united states vial and illinois and minnesota and that's typically not a hay making or bale making from a dealership side mm-hmm. there's just small pockets of the where there are dairies that was actually doing it but to come in with 40 80 100 balers at one time in a short window of time there's just a lot of logistics that go with it and i'm going to speak pretty broad here because we are we had some very defined projects where, that uh, that we worked on but they were driven driven by a whole lot of people not just me I had very little to do with it. I'd maybe helped implement part of it, but I had very little to discover. We we had the task of making it happen. Sure. Let's look forward a little bit. Sticking with hay, take me through where you think the hay industry is going to go. Maybe compare and contrast regions because the West Coast is so different than the East Coast is so different from the Midwest. And, and then layering in... Europe and Australia, it just compounds all of that. Well, I think in our prior conversation, I think the hay industry or the hay producers, the hay, if you want to use the term loosely, makers, Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be uh, a lot of opportunity in the the corn and soybean guys have been doing for a while with technology as far as monitoring equipment, monitoring, and then your fertility tracing it and traceability i really think like it or not that's where we're headed i believe that we're going to need to i don't say we have to we need to but i believe the market is is going to chase us or there will be some noise in it for traceability products Mm -hmm. that's going to mean we're going to know what our fertility is how that influences uh a relative feed value on, on good alfalfa mm-hmm. grasses not probably not so much but the export markets are going to demand that um, i think we have a lot of room to show that we can uh, the np and k's put it this in the type at certain times have an effect beyond just yield 
and they'll be managed a little different. I'm just going through some old documents here the, you know, the other day. The amount of data that we can pull from swathers and, and windrowers have not been utilized, but there's a lot of capabilities out there. I mean, when you can know how much twine is running through your knotters, know where your mist ties are in a field when you know what's causing that mist tie, when you know how many bales per hour, how many tons per hour, what your moisture is, what your bale length, what your flake size, what your pressure. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of things that can do to improve it, improve your efficiencies. Again, there's probably some economic scales that will keep some from out there, but I, I challenge the, even the smallest of producer to keep that in the back of his mind because that'll help uh, their bottom line as well, mm-hmm. but just at a different point. What we're talking about is throughput and efficiency metrics on the equipment side, and then more precision agriculture on the input side. Input side, and then then, the, then that ties in with the traceability. When when you're done, you can, should be able to pull up to a bale and you will know its its weight, its density, its relative feed value, its uh, DDG matter, everything that you need to know about it, its moisture, mm-hmm. when it was made, where it was made. Then that would go as it. I think the the export markets are going to be chasing down is it sustainable is it is it is it done in a sustainable way mm-hmm. right or wrong that's just where we're headed so what are you doing right now i am uh, applying all the things that i've learned into the air cedar side and tillage it's no longer just dumb iron it's telling us everything we're doing in the field and process as we're doing it again it's being driven it's been driven uh to what your efficiencies are Word gets used pretty heavily, and I want to be careful with doing that. I'm going to use the analogy of a commercial sprayer, spray rig. Mm-hmm. On row crop acres, seven years ago, the average efficient of time, uptime, so that would be spray time of a machine was 28% of its total hours was physically spraying because they, were, they had to jump around because of the different growth cycles, different planting dates of all the different growers on, on a commercial side. Mm-hmm. Now, an individual grower has those can dictate that their numbers are going to be up and be a lot better. Move that needle just 5% knocks a whole lot of dollars in cost out of it with very little dollars spent. It's just awareness of what we were able to find. And so I'm saying that of our any agriculture of event that we're doing we can pull some efficiencies out of out of these things here um, another one that, that's very vivid is those that own tractors don't worry about them what they're out the tractor sitting there and idling but it has a cost to them that they don't see you rent that tractor all of a sudden you're going to have that switch turned off while you're uh, while you're not using it because it becomes a a cost that's immediate or out of your pocketbook right right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So it's a little things that, that I think that that's where we need to concentrate on, not spending big dollars to chase big rainbows. And there are those rainbows out there, and there are those opportunities. But mm-hmm. at ground level, just about everybody that that uh, I come in contact has some some ability to influence their bottom line with just little um, activities that changes some habits or changes some activities without spending any money. Okay, you gave the example of shutting the tractor off when you're leasing it, because that's an immediate realization. What are some of the other things that come to mind? I'm going to go revert back to one of the projects we were on that all the horsepower was rented. It was also a, a uh, wasn't really a farming, considered a farming endeavor, so we were in industrial 
process. So safety uh, and safety related safety training become a factor of that, that we as growers may or may not look at. But in this case, it was driven metrics to change the behavior of the operators follow that there was a caveat that if you kept your idle time under x amount of dollars or x amount of percent that you would get x amount of dollars for maintaining that because i won't say the consumer but the business entity was having a rental cost of some x amount of dollars per hour for that tractor whether it was running when it was running for every hour was say a hundred dollars as a a number Mm -hmm. whether it was idling or bailing but in this case here, the safety was driving it. What ended up doing, that drove their idle time down, down closer to that 10%. So what you're talking about is structuring pay such that you get the, the outcomes that you're looking for. In this case, that's what we did. But I'm saying the average grower can do that too. Whether I have an old 4020, that probably cost me $5,000 or $4,000. doesn't make any difference with that number. It puts hours on. Yes, the cost of that are very minor. There is a cost to that. That engine fuel going through it and just being aware of that doesn't take much to just not let it run for two hours three hours that's the simple stuff simple stuff there's more there's more to it once you start diving into it but do you have any advice for the producers of tomorrow what should a young producer be looking at a young producer has got his hands full in, in my mind right now but i would say that he does want to form the to be engaged in in activities outside of just what he's doing expand the his relationship reaches if that if that makes sense at all because you never know when you're when they will come back to help you you'll never know what impact they have on on things that you do those are those are the things and then i'm help was working on a my son's project or the com- company that he started and they took a, a simple planner and there was you know with the precision planning stuff you can add do- lots of dollars per row in it but the reality was it was all the simple stuff that had a very adverse effect on the machine, and mm-hmm. that's where they started. And so I'm saying that even on even on the basic of, of, of doing of of any entity, whether you're hay or farming of any scale, that's where you need to look, and then be 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 active in your community. I was fortunate to be exposed to a lot of different people over a lot of period of time, and. Uh, they all move up and do different things in life, and they come back and you interact with it because the world's really not that big. Ken, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. 